Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast hosted by me, Anne Foster. This is the second episode of season four, and this season's theme is women trapped in towers and the assholes who sent them there. And this week is our second Margaret. Last week we did Margaret of Anjou. And today we're going to be talking about a woman named Margaret Pohl, who, if you watched The Spanish Princess on Stars, which was on last year, I think, the one that was about Catherine of Aragon, but based on the Philippa Gregory book. So just like, as per usual, and I love this about Philippa Gregory and these adaptations, just any possible rumor of any scandalousness, they just treat as total fact and include it, and it makes for a very exciting television show. Anyway, Margaret Pohl is a character on that, and there because they're dealing with the same thing i'm dealing with in this show which is like everyone in tudor era had the same name or like one of five names so they called her maggie on the show maggie pole she's played by laura carmichael lady edith from downton abbey anyway that show came out and i was just like who is margaret pole anyway and so i did a little bit of a deep dive learned a lot of interesting stuff about her and wouldn't you know she spent some time in a tower and she was sent there by one of history's greatest assholes, but we'll get to that later on in in this episode. So we're going to dive into Margaret Pohl, but as per every episode of this, and as per the way that I really try hard to think about when I'm reading these stories, like someone, someone living today, or someone living five years ago, or someone living 500 years ago, they may, maybe their life ended in some sort of horrible, tragic way with a murder or an execution or whatever, or like a slow, awful illness or whatever. But that doesn't retroactively mean their whole life was sad or that it does. It shouldn't. I'm trying to not be sad just because, you know, a story is going to end badly. That doesn't mean you have to like look back on the previous parts of their life. It's like, mm, here's the like childhood of a person who 60 years later, something sad would happen to. I hate describing a person's life as sad. I mean, I'm sure that there's people whose whole lives are sad, and that's awful. But Margaret Pohl is somebody whose life ended sadly. But there was a lot of cool stuff that happened before that. And that's just as interesting as what happened to her. So, who is this person? Well, first I'll tell you the sources I consulted for this to make this episode. So, Wikipedia, of course. An essay called The Beheading of Margaret Pohl by Kira Cornelius Kramer, who has her own website. And then an article on TudorSociety.com called The Downfall of Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury. And then also, there's not lots of biographies about her, but one, the one that I found is called Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury, Loyalty, Lineage, and Leadership by Hazel Pierce. So, Margaret, who is she? Okay, we're going to get, like, really into the family tree 
because she exists at the intersection of like every part of the War of the Roses Tudor era family tree. And that's part of why her life turned out like it did. So Margaret Pole. She was born just a little baby called Margaret at Farley Hungerford Castle in Somerset, the only surviving daughter of her parents. And her parents, her father was called George Plantagenet, the first Duke of Clarence. And her mother was his wife, Isabel Neville. Now, who were these two people? Well, Isabel Neville, for instance, was the older daughter of Richard Neville, a.k.a. Warwick, Warwick from last week's episode, who you may remember as the guy who was the advisor to King Hot Edward, and then he switched teams, and then he teamed up with Margaret of Anjou, Warwick. So that's Margaret's grandfather, Warwick. Her mother is Isabel Neville. Her father, George, was the middle of three sons, um, or maybe more than three sons, but only three are the ones that kind of matter. So the oldest, so her uncle, was in fact Hot Edward. So Edward, who would become Edward IV, was the oldest of these three brothers. George was the middle of these brothers, and then they had a little baby younger brother who was also called Richard, who later would become King Richard III, who's the like famous, maybe evil king. So those are her three. That's her dad and her dad's two brothers. So she's the daughter of the middle of these Plantagenets brothers. So when Margaret was three years old, her mother Isabel died as a result to giving birth to a younger sibling. So at this point, her father, George, who is already the sort of person who is paranoid and prone to suspicion, which is a reasonable way to live if you are living in this era and time, and you were one of the Plantagenet brothers. Anyway, he decided that actually his wife Isabel had been poisoned to death by her servants. Like, even though dying in childbirth was super common at that point, um, he's like, no, she was poisoned. And so he accused two of the servants, including a Welsh woman whose name was Anchorette Twinniho, which is a really great name. Um, so he charged them with... Uh, poisoning Isabel to death, they were both found guilty and executed immediately because servants didn't have a lot of defense for them when someone this powerful was accusing them of this. But like not too long after this, George's brother, Hot Edward, had both servants posthumously pardoned. So like basically saying like, yes, you've been executed, but like my bad, you shouldn't have been. Too bad, you're dead now. Oh well. This made George even more mad at his brother, the king, which resulted in a lot of scheming, and finally with Edward having George executed as a traitor, because George was basically being traitor-esque. So, toddler Margaret, now a little baby orphan, and her brother, who was also called Edward, were sent to be raised by their uncle Richard, later to be Richard III, the king, who is maybe evil, and his wife, Anne Neville, who was also, who's the other daughter of Warwick. So it's like a very close connection there where it's like to her parents' siblings married, wait, her father's sibling married his mother's sibling. So like, it's like a double aunt and uncle. So like real close. Um, so she's a little baby and whatever. So she wouldn't have known exactly what was going on, but I'll let you know because it matters a lot. 
So basically, when George was declared a traitor, all of his land and property were seized from him and returned to the king, because traitors don't get to be in charge of land or property, or have money. But Margaret's grandfather, Warwick, Isabel's father, who died not a traitor, although he was like fighting on the other side, but it's kind of like, who's on what side? He wasn't, he got to keep all of his land and money when he died, and he left behind inheritance, so the Warwick slash Neville inheritance. So this Neville money was divided up between, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a super expert on wills, but what I wrote here, and maybe I'm right, or maybe I wrote this down wrong, is the money was divided between Warwick's two daughters, Isabel and Anne. But Isabel was, of course, dead. So Anne had not had any children yet, though. So basically, the heir to the Neville inheritance was at this time Margaret's younger brother, Edward, because it had to go to a boy, effectively. So there's all this, so their father, all of his stuff was taken away. But through their mother, Margaret and her brother Edward have some inheritance, potentially, as long as Richard and Anne don't have any children. Um, so basically, at this point, Edward was the sole heir to the Neville fortune because he's the only boy. Um, this whole inheritance scenario remained unchallenged or unchanged because five years later, hot Edward died of pneumonia, I think, um, unexpectedly young, and then at which point her uncle Richard became Richard III as the new king, making her Auntie Anne the queen. Um, but Richard and Anne had not had any children. So Margaret and Edward were now kind of heirs to the throne because their uncle was the king, um, but kind of also not really because of George's treason made them be maybe not heirs, but they were like enough heirs to the throne that Richard was kind of nervous about keeping them around. And he was a person known to be nervous about keeping around children who might have a better claim to the throne than him, e.g. hot Edward's children, who were the princess in the tower, who there's the whole thing about who killed them, where did they go, etc. There's 10,000 books and podcasts and blog posts about that that you can read about, but I just mentioned that because maybe you've heard of it. But Margaret and Edward lucked out in the sense of they weren't murdered. Um, they were just kind of like sent away. So they were shipped off to a separate household. And then Richard III died in battle. Um, and the new king who took over was Henry Tudor, a.k.a. Henry VII. But... Margaret Pohl, who's not actually called Margaret Pohl yet, but that's just how she's known. She's going to get married and become Margaret Pohl, but she's... Anyway, Margaret, our heroine today, was still related to the royals because everyone's related to everybody. Because Henry VII, the new king, his wife was Margaret's cousin, Elizabeth of York. So the new royal couple, Hot Edward... Oh, no, sorry. Hot Edward is dead. Now it is Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. So they became Margaret and her brother's new guardians because they're just like little orphans and everyone keeps killing her guardians. So Margaret and Edward moved back to the royal court and pretty soon after that, the new king, Henry VII, arranged a marriage for his 14-year-old niece. So Margaret, like so much has happened vis-a-vis -vis who has custody of her and what is her life and what is her inheritance. She's just 14. Um, so Henry arranged a marriage between her and his henry's 30 year old cousin sir richard pole and this marriage so margaret was a york in terms of the cousins war scenario i mean technically she's a plantagenet which is kind of like both 
York and Lancaster, but whatever. She was on that side because her father was Warwick, I guess. Anyway, this was sort of like a dynastical match. Margaret was a York. Um, Richard Pohl was a Lancaster. And this was kind of like really cementing the fact that like, there's no more cousins war. The Yorks and Lancasters are all married to each other now. Don't worry about it. And as far as I can tell, the marriage between Margaret and Richard was okay. As good as anything could be. Like when it's a bad marriage, like people write about it. And I would tell you if I'd come across anything that said that. But this seems like as fine as things can be when a 14-year-old marries a 30-year-old in oldie times. They certainly had good luck in terms of like their children not dying in infancy and Margaret not dying in childbirth. Um, They had five surviving children whose names were Henry, Arthur, Reginald, Geoffrey, and Ursula. I'm kind of excited to have a Reginald and an Ursula show up. Unusual names for me in reading about this time period. Um, But as she was just like doing her best to not die in childbirth and she, which worked very well for her because she did not, she was also like scheming, scheming all the time, surrounded by scheming. I don't think she was doing a lot of scheming herself. I think she was just like, by the time she was 14, it's like she's lived through enough scheming. She's just like, let's just have some stability, have some babies and just like not do treason or be around treason. But everybody around her was doing treason. So for instance, um, midway through when she was having her babies, a man showed up on the scene whose name was Perkin Warbeck which is a great name and also a fake name. And he claimed to be one of the long-lost grown-up princess in the tower who were the heirs to hot Edward that Richard III maybe murdered. Um, but he's like, guess what? We weren't murdered and it's me. I'm back. And it's sort of like an Anastasia scenario where it's like I left, but now I'm back and actually I should be king and stuff. And this is lots of people written about this. I'm going to say Perkin Warbeck Almost definitely not Margaret's long-lost cousin slash heir to the throne, but his presence was convenient for anyone who wanted to get Henry kicked off the throne to just, like, pretend they believed that he was real because their people didn't like Henry because there have been so many kings and people are just used to, like, not liking who the king is. Anyway, one of the supporters of Perkin Warbeck, who was like, yeah, I bet you should be the king, was Margaret's younger brother, Edward And so the thing is, pretending to be a long-lost prince was not technically illegal, I guess. But King Henry VII was like, let's just keep an eye on this guy. Like, clearly this is sort of like a nexus point for people who want to get rid of me as being king. So let's just, like, see what he's up to. And everything was kind of weirdly cool. Perkin Warbeck just, like, hung out on the scene until it became clear that Perkin had been scheming with Margaret's brother Edward to overthrow king henry the seventh and that's you know crossing a line that is treason so edward and perkin were both sent to the tower of london and then were executed for this pretty pretty bad like unsuccessful but also just like poorly thought out scheme the death of her only brother meant that margaret was now the last remaining heir to the warwick fortune inheritance and also kind of the last remaining plantagenet um, in her family tree. So, oh no, what happened was, so he was dead, but because he was a traitor, all of his lands and inheritance were taken away from him. So 
Edward's inheritance, the Neville money from their grandfather Warwick, was now returned to the crown, leaving Margaret without any inheritance whatsoever, just because the men in her family kept being traitors. And that's a sucky thing for just law for women, clearly. But she was married and her husband was, guess what, not a traitor. So she and her husband went on to be awarded prestigious positions within the royal household. So it's kind of like, yes, they took away all of her money and lands and inheritance, but they're like, but we don't hold it against you personally, Margaret. So Henry VII's older son was Prince Arthur, and he was engaged to be married to Catherine of Aragon. And when Catherine of Aragon arrived from Spain, and this is like what the show The Spanish Princess is about. Um, Margaret was named lady-in-waiting to Catherine, and her husband Richard was named chief gentleman of the privy chamber to Arthur, who was the oldest son of the king. And then, of course, uh, things took a turn because Prince Arthur passed away unexpectedly of the sweating sickness, right? I did a whole thing. uh, One of my pandemic special podcasts was about sweating sickness. I believe he is one of the victims of it. Anyway, 1502, Arthur passed away. So then it's like, oh shit, like, because Arthur had been raised to be the new king. His brother, his younger brother, Henry, had been raised to be like, um, you know, priest guy. And now it's like, oh my God, now Henry has to be king. So Catherine of Aragon and Arthur's entourage was dissolved, which meant that Margaret was sent away because she was no longer needed to be a lady in waiting. Um, And then, let's see... And then in 1504, she had her fifth child, which was Ursula. And at the same time, her husband Richard died. I'm not sure of what, but I'm just going to guess dysentery. I'm going to guess illness because there wasn't a lot of like wars going on, but I can double check that later. Um, so Margaret, here's the situation. Single mother, widow, five children, one literally a baby, a newborn, um, she was now penniless and a mother of five because she didn't have any of her own inheritance. And then like when husbands die, the wives don't always get the money. It goes to the men's man relatives or whatever. So with nowhere else to turn, she went with her children to live in an abbey with nuns because she's just like, well, I'm I'm like the most royal person in England right now because of all my various relatives. But because of all the stupid treasons around me, I have no money and I have five children and So she went to live with the nuns. Um, And then she further cut costs by shipping her son Reginald off to be trained for the priesthood, because that's like one less child for her to support, I guess. But keep that in mind, because Reginald becomes very important later on. He becomes a very successful priest person. But then it's just like her life is just kind of like, that's good. That's bad. That's good. That's bad. Like, like that children's book. Because it just keeps seeming like, oh my god, poor her. And then suddenly her things change. But it seems like mostly not in her control. Although maybe she was just like used her social skills to really make people not forget about her and want to help her. So 1504, her husband died. She went to live with nuns. Five years later, 1509, um, so Henry VII died. And Henry VIII took the throne as the young, hot king. And 
he didn't have a beard yet. I don't think he was married to Catherine of Aragon. No one knew what a nightmare he's going to be later in life. I was just like, yay, we have a new young hot king. And they were happy about it. So although Henry VII had not been especially fond of Margaret, Henry VIII was. Because uh, he remembered how she was like such a nice lady and waiting to Catherine of Aragon before. And Henry VIII was like, guess who I'm going to marry? My brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. And so they invited Margaret back to court to be lady-in-waiting once more, this time lady-in-waiting to the queen. Three years later, Henry VIII further elevated Margaret's status by restoring her former title of Countess Countess of Salisbury, along with some of her late brother's seized lands. So you know what? Like, I'm saying this all sort of like passive voice, like Henry just decided these things randomly, but he did not. That's not how things work there. Like, people would be like suggesting things to him um people would be trying to like advance their own whatever so margaret either herself or very powerful people who supported her would have been like what if you just like do nice things to margaret pole and he agreed to do it which is good good for her so i'm going to keep that in mind later when we get to um scheminess because frankly like she would not be have had this many comebacks if she was just sitting around being like maybe king henry the eighth will be nice to me if I'm just quiet and don't do anything. So I think she's like behind the scenes getting getting um, things done. But also she's friends with Catherine of Aragon. Maybe Catherine of Aragon would have like mentioned to Henry this would be nice to do. So this is great. She's got a title. She's got some of her lands back. Um, and then I wrote this summary of like the next 10 years, which is her own favorite court waxed and waned, partly due to her own actions and partly due to those of her children. Because her children were like, um, very independent minded. So in 1516, she fought with Henry VIII over some lands she felt should go to her, but he disagreed and retained them for himself. Um, but clearly he favored her because in 1520... Um, she was selected to act as the governess to his first legitimate child, um, Princess Mary, who would later be Queen Mary I. Um, and I'll just mention at this point, because it's going to change in a bit, but at this point, like, everyone in England is, like, Catholic. That's what's happening. Henry VIII, Catholic. Catherine of Aragon, Catholic. Uh, Margaret Pole, Catholic. Like, Princess Mary, Catholic. Everyone's just like, that's our religion. We're England, and we are Catholic. Divorce isn't cool, and we love the Pope, etc. So at around the same time that Margaret was appointed to be the governess, which is, like, super influential, and it just shows how much Catherine and Henry really regarded her and thought she was, like, a good role model and stuff. Also, she had, you know, five children. Clearly, she knows what to do with kids. So her son, Arthur, Margaret's son, Arthur, was appointed to be one of the gentlemen of the king's privy chamber, and I'm sure we've talked about this, but just to recap, if you forgot or if we haven't talked about it, those are like the people who go with the king into his toilet room. And so what's really important about that job and why it's very prestigious is that that's when like there's very few people allowed when the king is pooing. And so if you're in there, then like you have a chance to like really tell him your point of view and like convince him about things because the whole thing of the king is like, he makes his decisions based on what people are advising him to do. So if you're with him when he's pooing, like he really listens to you and it shows, and also it shows he really trusts you because he's so, you know, vulnerable in front of you. So this is a great honor that her son, Arthur, got to go with him into the poo palace. Um, but then 
her son Arthur. So he had a patron, which I guess like courtiers just like had, I guess a patron is like also sort of like a mentor. Anyway, Arthur's patron was Edward Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham. On forage, he was found, Edward Stafford, was found guilty of treason and was what I wrote as gruesomely executed. Thank you, past self, for not going into detail, but I'm sure gruesomely executed. Um, Buckingham's actions tainted the reputation of Arthur because that was like his mentee. And this also tainted uh, Margaret's daughter, Ursula, who at this point was married to one of Stafford's sons. This is why you just got to not do treason because it's just going to wreck things for your kids. Margaret was also affected by this um, scandal because she was removed from the position of governess due to her connection to this, like e.g., it was her son's mentor and maybe she had like chosen him as the mentor or whatever. And yet because of her like soft skills or like being subtle and explaining her case to people and getting them to agree with her, she managed to regain her previous standing and was reappointed to the role of Princess Mary's governor, governess in 1525. But then um, everything changed when the whole Anne Boleyn scenario happened when Henry VIII was like, here's the thing. I'm in love with Anne Boleyn and I want to marry her. And to do that, I have to divorce her mom, but we can't divorce because we're Catholic. And then he's like, well, what if I get an annulment? Because my wife, Catherine of Aragon, was married to my brother, Arthur, before. And if they had sex, it says in the Bible, like, don't have sex with someone your brother had sex with. And the Pope is like, still no. And then Henry's like, well, then screw you, the Pope. I'm going to be Anglican now. And England became not Catholic anymore. That's my summary of that. Um, and so an effect of this. So when Henry VIII annulled his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, um, Princess Mary became no longer princess. She was now just Lady Mary. And she had all of her household staff removed, which included Margaret. But Margaret was fiercely loyal to her because she'd been her governess for a long time and they're like relatives and whatever. And she offered to stay on as governess. She even offered to pay her own salary. Henry refused the proposal and Margaret was sent away from the royal court. Um, frankly, that was probably just better for her mental health as well because things at court were just like bananas there in the whole Anne Boleyn scenario where it's like they got married and then she was was tried and executed for totally fake charges of adultery and everything was quite chaotic so you know what good for you like just step away from that but in fact um margaret's eldest son henry was actually one of the jurors um who's on the jury that found anne boleyn guilty so after anne boleyn was beheaded in 1536 margaret was again invited back to royal court and i can feel her being like rather not but i'm sure she was like yes i'm back in um, but her son, Reginald, who you, we last talked about when he was sent off to train to be a priest when he was a little boy and they were living with nuns, he's going to complicate things very soon. Um, and then we need to get into a new side character who is a person named Eustace Chapuis, who was the Spanish ambassador. And he's also a character in The Tudors, if you watch that show. He is also one of the main sources that like literally every historian has for learning about what was going on in the court of Henry VIII because he wrote a lot of very gossipy letters. He was the gossip girl slash TMZ of his, of his age. 
he, Eustace, was hanging around Tudor court for years, reporting back to Catherine of Aragon's parents about how Catherine was being treated and then how Catherine of Aragon's daughter Mary was being treated. Um, his records are obviously biased, but they're also very... <laughs> I wrote here, they're also very thorough and contain lots of exciting gossipy bits. Like, he did not hold back with what he was seeing and what was going on. It's sort of like, what's that thing? It's like page six or like had a hopper in Hollywood. He's just like, oh my God, you'll never guess who I just saw. Like, it's a it's a good record. And like some of it's probably true and some of it's maybe not true. He obviously had a slant of like supporting of Catholics and Spain. But anyway, so Eustace was a supporter of Lady Mary, formerly Princess Mary. He wanted her to be um, made a princess again. And he seems to have been encouraging Margaret's son, Reginald, to marry Lady Mary. And what would happen, as we heard with, like, Catherine Grey and all of that, it's like when someone has, like, a lot of ties to the royal family and someone has a lot of ties to another branch of the royal family and they get married, that's, like, a big declaration of, like, our babies could be king. So because of Margaret's Plantagenet background and therefore her son, Reginald's, and then Mary being the daughter of Henry VIII, like, if they got married... Um, that would be a big deal. Some people saw Margaret's sons as potential heirs to the throne. And that's the thing, is that Henry VIII's whole thing is like, I need a son because I need to have a son who will be the king because girls can't be kings. They can be queens, but I don't want that. So people are just looking around to be like, mm, Henry VIII not having sons. Like, who are some boys? Anyway, so some people looked at Margaret's sons to be maybe that. So if Reginald married Mary, that would be like, a powerful alliance and what it would be is a powerful catholic alternative to henry the eighth who was protestant so because eustace was in england and reginald had basically pieced out he was off on quote the continent because he was sort of a renegade catholic who enemy of henry the eighth he couldn't be in england because he'd probably be arrested so eustace and reginald were exchanging letters about their various schemes um, many of the letters went through Reginald's brother, Jeffrey Pohl, as an intermediary. But Reginald was like, not enough for me to just try and marry the king's daughter. He was also running around continental Europe doing his best to convince other princes and kings that Henry VIII should be deposed for how he'd broken with the Catholic Church. Because Reginald, like, set up as a child to be trained as a priest, to, like, clearly it suited him well, because he's just, like, all in re-Catholicism. But the people he talked to were mostly like, meh, good luck, but we're not going to help you with this, Reggie. In 1537, Reginald, still Catholic, I mean, he's going <laughs> to, spoiler, Reginald is never not Catholic, but he's, he's like an enemy of England, but he's like cool with the Pope and Catholicism. He attained the role of Cardinal, and the Pope assigned him a very important job to help coordinate a series of English marches and protests meant to force Henry VIII to replace his Protestant government with a Catholic one. So Reginald is like, I'm on it. And part of this was an event called the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was like quite unsuccessful and led to a lot of people being executed for their involvement in it. Yeah, 200 Catholics were executed for being involved in it. So Reginald arranged it. So, like, good job, Reginald, but then, like, maybe Henry VIII is a bit more powerful than he and the Pope had anticipated. So, basically, Reginald Pohl, Margaret's son, was all up in every plan to dethrone Henry VIII, and it was being communicated in letters through his brother, Geoffrey, to various people. 
So King Henry VIII's right-hand like fixer was Thomas Cromwell at this point. Um, Thomas Cromwell was just like, we got to get rid of this Reginald Pole. Like, what's he doing? Like, oh, he's trying to get rid of the king all the time? Okay. So Thomas Cromwell tried to send assassins to Italy to kill Reginald. Did not work. Two episodes of this podcast in a row was just failed assassinations. Um, this all left Margaret Pole in a precarious situation because she, um, you know, she had to choose. Was she going to support her treasonous son in Italy against the king or was she going to support the king and she chose the king and she wrote letters being like don't love what reginald's doing i still support you henry but henry was just like real big mad about this all um and because reginald was often the continent um and the assassins wouldn't work henry couldn't arrest him so the king was just like who can i arrest i'm so mad about this so he turned his vengeance against the pole family still in england so Geoffrey, the one who had been couriering the letters, was arrested. Um, under torture, Geoffrey implicated his older brother, Henry Pole, as well as a man named Henry Courtney, who was Henry VIII's cousin and also Margaret Pole's cousin. Um, in response to this, Henry VIII had basically every Pole family member arrested he could find, including Margaret, who was like in her 60s at this time. I think she's like 65. Like, what did she do? Come on. Um... And then weirdly, so following the investigation and more torture, only Jeffrey was pardoned. Like Jeffrey was the one who's giving the letters. So I'm not sure what that story is. Perhaps some man's historian can fill in those blanks for us. Um, everyone else other than Jeffrey, maybe he cut a deal. I don't know. Did they do that then? Could you cut deals like in Law and Order? But like Tudor era? Side note. That'd be a cool show. Law and Order, colon, Tudor era. Um, if you know Dick Wolf, let him know that. Um, so Jeffrey was pardoned, but everyone else, including 65-year-old Margaret, who like never did anything to anybody, were found guilty of high treason and sentenced to be executed. Like, for what? Un ugh, just because of Reginald. Reginald. Um, as part of the evidence against Margaret, Thomas Cromwell produced a tunic, so presumably the word meaning the same thing then as it does now, basically like a little shirt or like a long shirt with a design on it showing the five wounds of Christ, which he said symbolized Margaret's support for Roman Catholicism and of her son, the exiled cardinal, which is like a reach, especially because Thomas Cromwell just quote unquote discovered this tunic with this like embroidery, this like treason embroidery on it six months after her households were searched. So like clearly it was a fabrication and he just brought it in to like really make sure she was executed because like why what did she ever do um so margaret just like had happened to her dad slash like every man in her life ever um so she had all of her land stripped away she had her title stripped away instead of being countess of salisbury she's now just called margaret pole so she had no assets to her name, and her name was just Margaret Pole. And she's just like, what is this family curse that this keeps happening to everyone I know and now to me? So this is the women trapped in towers and the assholes who sent them there. And in this case, the assholes who sent Margaret there were Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. She remained a prisoner in the Tower of London for two and a half years, but in the like luxurious rich person way. 
So she was kept in a room together with her grandson. Um, so her son, Henry's son, also named Henry, because of course, as well as the young son of her cousin, Henry Courtney. So it's kind of like how she was the governess to Lady Mary for a while, but now she's just like jail governess to children. And I, I, you know, I'm sure at times, like all of us in quarantine, having other people around can be like a nice distraction and fun. And sometimes you're just like, can I have a minute to myself without two toddlers here? So I feel for her there. Um, so as per many of the royals and aristocrats held in the tower as prisoners, Margaret kept living a fairly luxurious life with her own servants and an allowance for new clothing. Love it. Um, she was still, let's see... In fact, she received a grant of fine clothing. So someone was just like, we give you clothing in March 1541 from the current queen's wardrobe. And Henry like went through his wives really fast at this point. But so at this point, the queen was Catherine Howard. And the story goes, Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, empathized. She felt badly for the elderly countess. I'm going to say 67. I wouldn't call her elderly. I wouldn't call someone 67 elderly in a current 2021 context, but I feel like in a Tudor era, sure. I would say Catherine Howard felt bad for the golden years countess in the tower and requested her tailor to send some comforting items, such as a fur nightgown and fur slippers. Love that image of a fur, furred nightgown and fur slippers. I meant like if you're... I'm sure it's cold even now to be in one of these, to be in the Tower of London or one of these old stone castles. Like, fur would just be so great. We don't know if Catherine specifically felt bad for Margaret herself or if she was just being like, I'm the queen and it's my duty to, like, upcycle some of my old clothes to somebody else and we have the same shoe size and here you go. Anyway, whilst Margaret was imprisoned during these two and a half years, Thomas Cromwell himself was arrested and executed because Henry was fully in his like tyrant phase of just like killing everybody all the time. Um, so one would hope and Margaret probably hoped like, OK, well, the guy who like literally like framed me and sent me here, if he's been found a traitor, then like, doesn't that make me be not a traitor? So maybe she would be set free. She would probably hope. But despite Cromwell's fall from grace, Margaret's execution date was set until the end. Margaret claimed her innocence. Um, she stated no crime had been imputed to her and that she was wrongly judged, which I think is all true. According to popular belief, a poem was found carved on the wall of her cell, which goes, and I mean, the popular belief that said she wrote this. So it goes, for traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor. No, not I. My faithfulness stands fast, and so towards the block I shall not go, nor make one step, as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy, save thou me. But this poem did not help, and Margaret was beheaded, age 67, on May 27th, 1541. Due to her noble birth, like the fact that like parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, like every level of her entire family were like wildly noble this was not a public execution um but it was rather held before a group of about 150 notable witnesses and maybe this is just the like pandemic in me but i feel like 150 people is not that private um anyway the group of 150 witnesses included eustace chapuis the spanish ambassador 
who had been conspiring with her son and is kind of like one might say partially responsible for all this and it's from his gossip girl blog that we learn details such as margaret continued to deny any involvement in treasonous activities he also says that with the regular executioner unavailable, her execution was performed by a less skilled man who literally hacked her head and shoulders to pieces in the most pitiful manner. Um, Margaret's remains were laid to rest in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula within the Tower of London. Her eldest son, Henry Pole, was executed at the same time, as was her cousin, Henry Courtney. And yet all other family members were eventually released from the Tower of London. This whole thing is a big question mark to me. Like what's Henry just wanted to get, was he just like hoping to like lure Reginald back in by killing his whole family? I don't know. But guess what? Joke's on you, Henry VIII. Because Reginald became, um, so after Henry VIII died, his Catholic daughter took the throne as Mary I. And she's like, guess what, England? We're Catholic again. And she made Reginald Pole the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is a super high and important post. And he was, in fact, the last Catholic to hold that post because every ruler after them was Protestant again. Following his mother's execution, um, Reginald Pole said he would never fear to call himself the son of a martyr. And 345 years later, in 1886, Margaret Pole became literally that because in 1886, um, she was named the Blessed Margaret Pole under the Roman Catholic Church, which is kind of like one step below being a saint. So that's her end of story. It's all, it's quite a saga. Ups and downs and how much of what happened to her was just like wrong place, wrong time, wrong, like, bloodline and how much was her actually like she really truly did not seem to be involved in what reginald was up to and i think it just fucking sucks that henry the eighth was like well let's just kill her whatever i'm glad you got some fur slippers before she died so to score our friend margaret pole scandaliciousness i feel is quite low because she was surrounded by scandalousness, like a father was a traitor, brother was a traitor, like literally everyone around her. Her uncle was Richard III. Like all these things were happening around her and sometimes it sort of tainted her, but she always came back. Like she specifically herself was not super scandalous in the way that we talk about scandalousness. Like I'm sure to another person or people back then being associated with like Catholic rebels and treason is like very scandalous, but I'm talking like affairs murders um tits out lifestyle and she was just like that was not her thing and that's fine and i respect her for it but i'm gonna give her a three a three for scandalousness i think just because scandalousness by proxy um scheminess this is where i feel like i don't have specific examples of what she herself did that was schemy other than like writing letters to the king being like hey guess what i side with you not my son who sucks but the fact that she was like had her titles taken away got them back like was the governess was kicked out became governess again like she clearly was like working some scheminess i'm gonna give her a nine a nine for scheminess her significance now her significance to like the catholic church to whom she is like halfway to being a saint 
that's quite significant, I would say. Um, Henry VIII clearly thought she was significant enough to like kill. Um, her son became Archbishop of Canterbury. Her significance to like global slash world history is not extreme. Not as much as like Cleopatra or whatever. So I think a six for significance. And then for the sexism bonus, I'm going to give her, I think, a nine. Because she, well, just everything. Like the whole, like she would have been the heir, except she was a girl. So then her brother was the heir. But then because of, then he was a traitor. So then no one was the heir. Like they came to seize the lands instead of giving it to her. Like, and then the way that she was blamed for the acts of her sons, like what, like yeah, she was literally she gave birth to them, but like how is she supposed to stop them once they're adult people? I feel like. Well, and then also the whole thing when her husband died, and she's like, "Well, I guess now I'm just like a penniless mother of five. I'll go like live with the nuns because society has no means to support me, even though I'm like super royal." Yeah, sexism bonus nine. I feel comfortable with that. So that's eighteen. 27 that's a 27 which is one mark one mark one point higher than last week's margaret of anjou who got a 26 um isabella of castile also is at a 27 jean de lamont catherine parr francis gray like this is a definitely a respectable mark and i feel like this season is shaping up excitingly because we're getting to some much more scandalous stuff so we'll see where everybody lands on the scale but that's why i balance out the scandaliciousness with the significance because sometimes someone like tits out francis howard you think would be at the top but it's like her significance to my heart 10 out of 10 but her significance to like history not quite as much um and then i have a recommendation for you as well um, because that's a new thing I'm doing this season to recommend other history resources to you to sort of compliment. Like it's easy to, um, not easy. There's some major people and stuff in history that there's so much written about. And that's like, um, World War II battles. Um, there's a lot of books about like Winston Churchill. There's a lot of books about like Henry VIII. Um, but trying to find information about not royals not battles so talking about women and especially like not rich women takes so much more digging and i really appreciate the people who are out there doing that digging for us and i just just finished reading a book which i've been meaning to read for ages and i finally did and it's so good um and it's exactly this it's like the perfect book like if i could write a history book i would love it to be like as good as this so it's a book called the five by Hallie Rubenhold. And so what she's done, Hallie Rubenhold, is she tells the stories of the five five of the women who were killed by the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper in oldie times, London. And this is part of why I was saying at the beginning of the episode, it's like just because someone's life ends horrifically doesn't mean that retroactively their whole life was sad necessarily, right? It's like how you die isn't the most important thing that happens to you for most people I would think and so if I say I was trying to tell my friend about this book and I was like yeah it's about the women who were killed by Jack the Ripper and she's like ugh, no that sounds depressing I'm like no it's not it's actually like really 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 interesting social history so it's five women who lived in 
1888 in London, and Hallie Rubenhold has done incredible amounts of research just pieced together what these five, like, ordinary women, like, they were not wealthy, they were not rich, they didn't, like, invent something. Like, there's so many books out now that are, like, women who did cool stuff, and these are just, like, women who just, like, got by and were just everyday people. So I'm going to read you a bit from the blurb of it because it'll explain it better than I can. Um, Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine, and Mary Jane are famous for the same thing, though they never met. Um, they came from Fleet Street, Knightsbridge, Wolverhampton, Sweden, and Wales. They wrote ballads, ran coffee houses, lived on country estates. They breathed ink dust from printing presses and escaped people traffickers. What they had in common was the year of their murders, 1888. The person responsible was never identified, but the character created by the press to fill that gap has become far more famous than any of these five women. For more than a century, newspapers have been keen to tell us that the Ripper preyed on prostitutes. Not only is this untrue, as historian Hallie Rubenhold has discovered, it has prevented the real stories of these fascinating women from being told. Now, in this devastating narrative of five lives, Rubenhold finally sets the record straight, revealing a world not just of Dickens and Queen Victoria, but of poverty, homelessness, and rampant misogyny. They died because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but their greatest misfortune was to be born a woman. Oh, it's such a good book. It's so interesting. It mentions there, I forget which one of them it is, but one of them like literally was like selling ballads on the street. So interesting. Um, it's just a really interesting thing to learn about. I love this stuff, like how people lived. What were their emotions like? What were their lives like? And for several of these five women, it's like, what happens when you're abandoned by your husband? And I mean, like we saw in this story, like Margaret Pohl was like had every privilege in the world. But once her husband died, it's like, and now you have to go live with nuns because there's no social support net. So for the women in these stories, like what happens to them and how do they get by? I want to really emphasize the book is not depressing in the way that you might expect. It's super interesting to see what these women are like. And then as each story kind of gets towards the end, you're just like, oh, oh no, she's going to be murdered. But it's like, there's so much interesting stuff besides how they died. And that's, it's so interesting. And I, I quickly just said, like, there is sort of like the common belief that Jack the Ripper was killing like streetwalkers, like sex workers. And of the women in the story, only one of them was doing that as a job that we know of. Not that... Like, it's so easy to dismiss the victims of violence today as well, right? With victim blaming, it's like you can really focus on who was the killer and what were their motives or whatever. It's easier to do that when you are able to treat the victims as just sort of like collateral. But the story really frames them like this book shows you who they are as people. And once, like for me, having learned about them like this, like in the epilogue of the book, Haley Rubenhall, like just like guts you. She just talks about how, you know, there's like the Jack the Ripper walking tours and like postcards and like funny pop-up books and whatever. And it's like, yeah. And they like use like the quote unquote hilarious, like blood spatter patterns of these women on a tote bag or whatever. And you're just like, this is so fucked up. And there's so many things that are like that. Um, that are so fucked up, that are based on denying the humanity of people. So anyway, I love I love this book a lot, and so I'm recommending it to you. Um, you can get it as an audiobook as well. That's how I read it, and the audiobook reader was great. Um, and then the only other things I have to tell you are... I made myself a list, so I don't forget to tell you anything. So you can follow this podcast 
on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. We're on Twitter at Vulgar History. I have a Patreon, which if you go to patreon.com slash Writer, that's where if you pledge a little bit of money, um, you get some extra content from me, including one extra podcast per month, even when I'm not doing Vulgar History Podcasts, I'm doing other podcasts. Um, the ones I do there right now are mostly So This Asshole is the theme where I just kind of like look up a gross guy from history and then just like explain why he's the worst. I recently just did Captain John Smith, who is so awful. Um, there's so many awful men we're meeting this season in the show. I It'll give me many months of content for that little side podcast you can listen to there. Um, we have our Teespring store. Um, I'm Hopefully by the time this publishes, I will have some merch up there for this season's Women Trapped in Towers theme, but there's also merch there from previous seasons. You've got Tits Out Francis Howard, you've got um, Mask On, Tits Out, slogans, lots of cute stuff, t-shirts and various things. Um, and then also, like for the book, The Five by Hallie Rubenhold, um, it'd be, I recommend reading it however you read it, whatever, no judgment. But there is um, a website called bookshop.org. And when you buy stuff through them, it gives the money to independent bookstores who need so much support. And I love supporting independent bookstores. And I have a list there of all the books that I've used as I've referenced on the show and also ones that I have used as references. Um, so the link to that is in the show notes as well. Um, and I guess that's everything. There's more episodes to come. Isn't it fun? Isn't it fun to have another season going on? I'm excited to, to bring you more stories next week. All I can say is next week's woman is not named Margaret, but there will be more than one more Margaret coming up this season because, I don't know, Margaret's just get stuck in towers more than other people. Anyway, I hope you're all doing as well as you can in these unprecedented times. Um, book your vaccination if you can. And as ever, keep your mask on and your tits out. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.